So welcome everybody to a new episode of the Solar Journey. And uh, today we have a new guest and he is called Harald Overholm. Hello, Harald. Harald, I just learned that that's the way we should pronounce it in Swedish. Thank you. Thank you, Thorsten. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that was really well done, actually. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Harald is a Swedish citizen and he lives in the beautiful city of Stockholm, Sweden. And he's the co-founder and CEO of Alight. That's the leading PPA power purchase agreement provider in the Nordics. But before we go into that, uh, let me just uh, outline his uh, CV. So, um, yeah, when I looked at it there, he, it starts with an, an odd occasion and maybe we can switch back to that later. So in, in uh, just before the, the century changed uh, in 2000, he was the CTO of Fork Unstable Media in Hamburg. So uh, he was based in, in Germany for some time. Uh, and that was actually, it seems, before he actually went to university. So I'll definitely come back to that. Uh, he finished a, a degree in industrial engineering of energy systems in 2007 at the KTH Royal Institute of Technology in, uh, in Sweden, in Stockholm, I think it is. Yeah. And uh, he was also in, um, in Cambridge in the UK. He did a PhD there. Um, on with a focus on the market development of the US solar PPA market. So he's actually a real trained PPA specialist. Right. So um, that was also interesting to see. I didn't know that, you know, that the PPAs are that old that you can already do a degree in it. But uh, maybe it all starts now with, with, with his PhD work as the first lecture book on that topic. We'll also discover discover that and um, yeah then he became after his uh, degree his phd he became the investment director at sustainable technologies funds in stockholm sweden and he did that until 2012 um, um, that's a nordic venture capital fund focused on clean tech investments um, funded with 58 million by institutional investors mainly by the Swedish pension funds. And um, yeah, he was also a chairman of the board of uh, two other companies. And uh, in, uh, from 2014 until 2015, he became a chairman of the board of Vireo Energy. That's a renewable energy re utility, primarily in the bioenergy area. Um, and uh, that's a company part of the Kinevik Group, which is a gigantic company because it's got 5 billion euros in assets. So that's also interesting, I think, to, to understand what that company does. So we'll need to talk a lot about your CV before we actually come to your current position. If you like. And um, yeah, then he... That's also interesting. He went from the, let's say, business side of things to the, uh, uh, how can I put it, institutional public sector. Uh, he, he became part of the uh, Solar Energy Association of Sweden. And uh, he also became the exter an external associate of the Stockholm Environment Institute. Um, he did that for six years. Um, and the Stockholm Environment Institute, they do uh, independent research for environmental policy. Um, it's funded by the Swedish government and it's ranked the most influential environment think tank in the world. In, uh, it got that title in 2016. So uh, Harald did a lot of thinking there and um, this I'm sure was then also later on the, <laughs> the basis for his new company. But he also yeah. Well, all of that was actually in parallel. So that's okay. Uh, okay. I mean, uh, many of those things were things that I've done just just on the side while okay. while setting up uh, a light. Okay. Good. Good. And uh, then you also became you were also a member, and you still are. You still are member of the IEA PVPS workgroup on uh, photovoltaics and utilities. So uh, the IEA, that's the International Energy Agency. Yeah, um, that's an agency funded by 
countries, the uh, is it OECD? No, no, which I think it's like a part of almost the UN system, but to be honest, I'm a little bit unsure. So, yeah, <laughs> so the many, many, many big nations are part of the the, the IEA, yeah, and uh, yeah, so there's they do an important job, but they are also criticized for various things. So maybe we can also touch ground on that. And uh, in uh, now we finally come to Allied. In 2013, he founded Allied, and he's now the CEO of Allied. And um, Allied helps companies across Europe to switch to solar, save money, and do good now and in the long term. And as I mentioned yes. earlier, they um, they provide power purchasing agreements uh, mainly in the Nordics, I guess. Yeah. So. Uh, a great CV, pretty interesting. Uh, we can spend a lot of time <laughs> talking only about that and the experience you did. Happy to. Let, let's let's see how we we handle that. Um, so thanks a lot for Harald to, to for coming on the onto the show. Um, let Let's start in the beginning. Um, you know, I'm I'm the CEO of a, a company myself, and uh, I like to look look at the the odd spots in the CV because maybe sometimes they they tell you a lot. Maybe it's nothing, but sometimes they do. So you were you were in Hamburg before you went to university, yeah. correct? Yeah. So what did you do at Fork Unstable Media? <laughs> it was the you know the crazy '90s, you know, internet uh, <clears throat> days. I that's um, I started my career yeah. in uh, like high growth Swedish internet startups before going to university. So I was kind of yeah. I think I was 16 when I started coding HTML. You know, it's like. Uh, 96 um and then i ended up in in germany in hamburg uh yeah so first working with a swedish company but then i switched over to uh, an even cooler german uh, german slash american company and a good friend right. of mine was called david, david lindemann uh -huh. was running it together with some german partners and they were i think definitely the coolest guys around uh, at least i thought so my, yeah. my 18 year old me thought so um and yeah, I mean, we were just doing web pages, so it wasn't more advanced than that. But uh, it was a great time. I loved Hamburg. It was a fantastic city. You know? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I managed to come to Hamburg once in a while. My my parents live in that area, so um, I uh, yeah, Hamburg is great. Yeah, yeah. Of course, I, as a, as an eighteen year old. Uh, young internet professional, I had to live very close to the Reeperbahn, you know, in these. Uh, in the complete red light district it was very messy for someone from stockholm it was like a world i had never seen before so it, yeah. it actually left a really strong impression in terms of just different lifestyle you know yeah i can imagine so it, the that uh, assignment and in 2000 you, you you were part of the 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 internet bubble bust or is it no not the bust just the yeah. bubble the bubble yeah yeah, yeah. Because I realized I had to go to university, so I kind of left. Yeah, I left the whole scene. I went back to university, and and then the bubble bust. So I okay before that, right. good time actually. You enjoyed the good time. You, only yeah. the you only had enjoyed the the good time. You didn't have to exactly. go through the the downturn. Yeah. So then you realized, well, I guess you need to you need a proper degree, a proper education. You went to university, yeah. uh, even finished that phase with a PhD. And as I mentioned earlier, so you did the PhD on uh, on the PPA market in in the US. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I came to know about PPAs a lot le uh, later. Maybe you can tell sketch us sketch out the the history of PPAs. I'm sure you cover that in your introduction. Yeah, 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 totally. I mean, so PPA, it's a power purchase agreement, and I mean, mm -hmm. it's it's just a way to make sure that new power is packaged really neatly and simply for an actual power user. So someone who's using power, I mean, that can be uh, that can be actually a residential household uh, or it can be a big company using power. It doesn't matter. Just someone is using power and suddenly they can just buy that power from a new power plant. So like from something new that's built for them, solar or wind as well. You see people using wind. And it's really simple for them. So all they have to do is assign a contract and then someone else will deliver the power um, for, for a good price, uh, probably a locked-in price from this new asset. And this is actually 
it's the concept of doing that, of like packaging power in that way came out of the US. It started before solar, um, <clears throat> but then before solar, it was only done for really big things. And that's it kind of like grew a little bit in the 80s and in the 90s. But then in the early 2000s, a bunch of entrepreneurs in the US saw that this was a way to make solar um, happen. Because in, in Europe and in other places, solar was happening because the government was like paying for all the electricity. But that wasn't the case in the US. So in the US, if you wanted to make solar happen, you had to find someone who's going to pay for the electricity. And to do that, you had to find a sophisticated business model and kind of make it work. And that became PPA. So the first company was a company called Sun Edison um, and uh, an entrepreneur whose name is Jigar Shaw, who is uh, isn't an important guy today. I mean, he's a very influential kind of thinker today. And he's running a fund called Generate Capital in San Francisco. But he set up, he had a very strong vision about how PPAs could become the way to make solar grow. And then he set up Sun Edison and he made that happen. And he kind of proved the model and he proved it so well that, you know, it's like a hundred other companies in the US just took on from that point and did it for every particular customer niche you can think of. I mean, from the smallest residential to the absolutely biggest um, solar parks around and across, across the US. And that has been going on in the US since about, I think, 2005 was when, when Jigger signed the first PPA for solar. Um, with Whole Foods or Staples, I'm not really, I can't really remember one of those two. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that point on, the US market has been growing super fast. So when I got there in 2010 uh, to do my research for my PhD, it was already a five-year-old market with, with very strong growth uh, uh, trajectory. So there was a lot to do research on. And then as you correctly point out i mean it came to europe a lot later so it came to europe like in 2016 2017 we started seeing really like the first kind of ppa trend in europe so i mean it took 10 years but uh, there's a a bunch of clear uh, reasons for why it took so long for it to move from the us to europe but yeah Uh, good good excellent and can you outline what was the, the key result of, of, your, of your PhD? What was the biggest learning? Well, look, you know, like a PhD on the academic side of things, it's just like super esoteric. You have to position yourself in this like strange academic dialogue. And I mean, I'm not going to bore you with the, like, the academic findings because they are very, very difficult to make, uh, to, to make lively and interesting. But... I'm going to say that for me personally, like the biggest finding out of the PhD was that it gave me a license to go to the US and meet with that whole market and just, you know, meet all these entrepreneurs. Someone like Jigger, who to me, before I did my PhD, uh, I knew about Jigger and I thought he was an amazing, he was like an idol. I mean, like people would view Elon Musk today, basically. And then suddenly I was doing this PhD and I was just spending like 10 hours, you know, with Jigger interviewing him in detail on exactly how he built this company. And to me, that was just like, yeah, it's just the most amazing experience. I mean, uh, these were American super successful entrepreneurs in a business model that I thought was maybe the most, I mean, seriously, like the most important business model that I could ever think of. And then I was just allowed to sit and interview them much like you yourself get the chance you know to interview like there's a context you have some kind of right to ask a lot of questions to someone um yeah and i got to do that over the course of two years and yeah i just learned so much it was so i don't know if that's a clear finding the finding for me was just, yeah. Yeah, it was just massive inspiration yeah are you, are you still in contact with jigasha did, did you manage to uh, keep in touch a little bit like but there was a point after i think in 2013 or 2014 after i was done with the phd uh, and then he decided to set up generate capital and i remember emailing him and then i got this automated reply saying from this point on i'm no longer available to just have a coffee and a bit of a chat <laughs> so i think he realized that he's put himself in a position where a lot of people were just like asking him for a lot of advice and then he wanted to move on and, and set up generate capital and he had to cut down a little bit on that um but i've i've had the privilege of having other mentors from the us as well so both um uh, someone called david busby who's also part of setting up sun edison 
and then he's also set up Sunrun and, and STEM. Uh, he was very useful during the first years of the light in, in helping us out. So very grateful to him. And now, these days, we've actually established, an, or I've established, a, a relationship with, with a guy called um, Peter Rive, who is a part of setting up Solar City, and then yeah. with um, Tesla Tesla Energy. So Pete is actually he's actually on our webpage now as a kind of a senior advisor and someone who is regularly coaching me on. Um, Again, just you know, bringing the experience of the PPA market that that has been going on for a long time, and I mean, he's seen enormous growth in, in that market, and he can just help us to problem solve um, at the stage that we're in in Europe. And um, yeah, it's uh, we keep we keep looking at the American market as as a really important roadmap for where we are going here. Yeah, hey, fascinating. Um... Super cool that you have these uh, outside input, and uh, it seems that quite often the, in the US you have business models um, developed a lot earlier than uh, in, in in Europe, for example. Right? Um, my dad used to travel as an engineer very often, like in the eighties, nineties, to the seventies, to the US for, for in the automotive industry, right? And uh, Yeah. Also, back then, he always brought back the coolest toys and the stuff to to wear, like frisbee skateboards, right? And he always said, like, uh, whatever is developed there, it takes 10 to 20 years before it's it hits Europe, right? And with All the right. PPAs, well, there you go. <laughs> and PPAs, exactly 10 it, yeah. years, right? As you mentioned, and before years. it goes big, now it's 15 years, right? It was the coolest, uh, the coolest toy, you know. And yeah. Was, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. Cool. All right, and then you went on to uh, sustainable technologies funds. That was, uh, in a way, then your for three years your your first proper job with a degree. The way I understand your CV, right? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, or just to set the timeline straight here, so actually, I went to university. I did a degree in engineering. Then I went to do. I worked as a venture capitalist for for about six years in the. Yeah. Ah, oh, that's in parallel. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, and then I kind of took time out and went to Cambridge to do my PhD right. in the US. So I just. Yeah. I'm okay, trade. but um, yeah, I mean, I was a VC in in the clean tech space for six years. That was an amazing experience. And, uh, yeah, yeah, and just got to see so many companies and so many passionate entrepreneurs trying to solve environmental questions through entrepreneurship. And I kind of saw, you know, the good and the bad and the ugly of that. So uh, lots of lots of findings and uh, yeah, really excited. Yeah. What did what did you move in the, in the first place to move to the into the renewable space? You started off with a, like a, as a media guy, uh, designing websites. How, how did that yeah, change? Yeah, yeah, but that, I mean, that, I think I don't think that period really reflected any deeper sense of, of you know direction. That was just I was 16 and I got the actually got a job. You know, that's like when you're 16, you're kind of happy to get a job to start with. Yeah. And then it was, you were young, needed the money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Now, now I think you know. Like to me, really, I've been in now. I've been in renewables basically my whole career, um, 15 years, and, and also the university degree that I did was in renewables, and uh, it does reflect. <clears throat> it reflects a calling. I mean, definitely, it reflects like the most apparent logic is just that climate change is like a really, really stupid thing. You know? It's mm. just not. It's it's you know you don't have to be political about it in any way. It's just it's just logic. It's just such a stupid thing, and we all kind of know. I think, okay, maybe this is controversial, but we all kind of know that, that fossil fuels should be banned. Basically, I mean, it's such an apparent insight, but we all kind of also realize that there's no way we can ban fossil fuels unless we have some kind of proper alternative, because otherwise it's just crazy. We don't have any energy, and like that would sound like The collapse of civilization and we don't want to go down that route so so when you think of it it's just this massive and super stupid question that just has but the only logical answer is an answer you can only get there if you develop alternatives so when you just do that little loop in your head you just keep ending up and well i mean it really makes sense to put all of your effort into into helping you know develop the the alternative that will help us ban fossil fuels. And I think, you know, that's just a little loop that I've been playing in my head for a very long time. And it just just feels like 
self-evident thing to be working on. So <laughs> unless yeah. unless the loop start stops playing at some point, I mean, as far as I can tell, it's the only thing that I should be doing. Yeah. You, you've got a degree in industrial engineering, so you could have chosen more the more technical part of, of the business. Yeah. Um, how did it come about that you felt, well, I'm more on the, on the business side of, of things and uh, uh, deal structures, PPAs, et cetera, right? You could yeah, have developed question. turbines or yeah, software. Yeah, but I think it's like, I, I think, yeah, that, it's a really good question because I think it comes back to bottleneck thinking, right? Do you want to, I think it's just me asking myself, like, really if you want to change something in this market where's the bottleneck and and for me really early on i realized that there was this <clears throat> okay sorry i'm gonna go on a little tangent here but yeah. there was this like epiphany for me uh i remember it it was 2006 and i just got my first job uh in, in finance uh, renewable finance and they sent me to milan to eu pdsec which is a massive uh, still today it's a massive conference um, we could have met there maybe we did Without knowing, yeah, maybe we did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we had a coffee like yeah. you know, 15 years ago, yeah. Um, so and so I went to EUP the second because I came out of the Nordics, I kind of didn't know that much about PV, um, because renewables for us was like wind and, and uh, biomass. <clears throat> so I thought, like, a PV conference, I thought it was going to be kind of like futuristic, a bit fuzzy, and then I turned up a PV and said. And it was like a ready-to-go industry. I mean, it was a global industry of professionals, and it was just there. You know, it was just working. Um, it left such an enormously strong impression on me that I just just felt like, look, I don't know what we're waiting for. Like, obviously, this technology is just completely done. It's like packaged. It's working. It's professional. Like, they just these guys just know how to do it. And I mean, first of all, I felt like you know I want to be a part of this because this is so. It's so modular, it's low flexible, it's like something you can deploy everywhere. But secondly, and this comes back to your original question, like what's the bottleneck here? Because the bottleneck is not the technology because it's, it's there. Um, and the bottleneck does not seem to be, you know, anything else that, that needs any particular kind of technical innovation at that point. The bottleneck just seemed to be, how is this going to end up on every rooftop and every, You know, how, how are we going to deploy this at the, at the rate, at the speed that we need to make an impact? And, and the more I thought about that, the more my conclusion was that com commercial business models, that's really the real bottleneck because there's only two ways that you can kind of deploy solar at scale. The one way is by asking the government to subsidize it, you know, and the other way is to find commercial use for it so the power users actually pay for it. And the government way, you know, it works, but it's like it's always risky because then you change government and then suddenly you have nothing and you get these complete you know, boom and bust cycles. And it's just like not, it doesn't feel like a long-term way of doing things. Whereas commercial business models, if they work, if you really deliver value to, to the people who use power in this world, then as far as I could tell, it would be something that would grow over time and, you know, and become become just more and more important um, the larger it got so yeah that was the thinking um, excellent excellent so but yeah that, that's real entrepreneurial thinking right so where's the problem here and uh, I want to be part of the the, the solution so uh, yeah interesting yeah yeah very good and um, hmm as we continue with our your CV so you were joined to let's say non-business uh, non-profit put it this way non-profit uh, organization that's the uh, stockholm environment institute and the iea so what what drove you there so what was the thinking behind that well yeah i think it comes back to having you know a, a deeper purpose or a passion for for the market and the passion for the ultimate outcome of the market so to the extent that i can be of any use outside of what we do as a company and um, I try to make time to to do that so I've been on the board of the Swedish Solar Association just to it was in the early days you know there's just really few people in the Swedish solar industry so just helping yeah. to set it up felt like if it helps the industry it's a good thing you know um, 
I don't think typically in our industry, we all just need the industry to grow. We just need the awareness of this to grow. It's not about competing with each other primarily. It's about building an industry together um, and an ecosystem together. And I think as an entrepreneur, it's actually an important part of what you're doing is to and again, I was inspired by Jigger as well. I mean, what did he do? He built Sun Edison to a great company, but then he spent like hours and hours sitting with me, just telling me what he had done so that I could put that into articles and tell other people about it. I mean, and someone like that considered it the priority to to help teach others and teach the ecosystem, then 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 surely, you know, that's the right thing to do. Um, I just felt like that's a that's a part of being an entrepreneur if you believe in what you're doing, is that you help build your industry. Yeah. So, um, so you're still on part of the IEA, but uh, so both, both, uh, let's say it's it's a part-time job or it's just a. No, I mean it's not even a job. Like the the IEA thing is, a, yeah. I'm a member of a forum, and they they kind of call. We have like a yearly meeting, and we share some information okay. between that, and we we just take try to take time to to educate each other on whatever, whatever we are learning about. Um, in the market and the, the focus of that forum is in business models so yeah the, uh, business model side of silver yeah good, good. No, it's, not, it's not a job like it's a no one's uh, they're okay. not paying yeah yeah good 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 well, what do you think about the IEA um I mean they, oh. there's there's the Dutch professor Arno Hoekstra he, he puts up these graphs where you know the IEA forecasts a flat development yeah. of the future for the uh, PV uh, employment, and uh, and of course it goes exp the growth is actually exponential. So um, you wonder why the IEA is so yeah. off with their prediction. Um, it seems to me, and I try to uh, start a conversation with um, with them that, and the way they present themselves is, I could. I might sense there's a change in policy, maybe. But uh, wh why was it so bad? And wh what do you think? How are they playing playing it now, right? What, what's their real objective? The, I mean, this is the the underlying criticism, right? Are they? What, what's the real objective here? Right? Are they really trying to promote renewables, or what? What is it about? Yeah, right. Well, uh, this, that's a good question. I, I actually I have almost no insight into the IEA. Because I mean, I sit in this like network that's organized by the IEA, but it's really like on the side of the organization. So, so I think I'm the wrong person to ask about you know that particular thing. But uh, but I have seen the graphs as well that you're talking about the hex graph, mm. and I think they're amazing. And and without knowing anything you know that, that you don't know, I just think they illustrate how linear thinking is just wrong. Typically, I mean. Um, you want me to you know I'll, I'll spend maybe if i can just spend a few minutes on on this in terms of solar because i think i have a very strong opinion here on what's what's happening going forward and i think mm -hmm. solar has been and will be increasingly it's one of these cases of growth is driven by a lot of overlapping trends some of these trends are like technology trends some of these trends are like markets <clears throat> and the customer perception trends but just but solar is driven by all of them and by kind of you know the overlap of them in just the same way that you know, take some simple example take like the iphone like why could this iphone suddenly emerge and then get really big it wasn't because one thing was done right it was because it was like a point in time where a lot of things started to converge the the cost of certain technologies the quality of certain technologies customer demand the quality of like the internet uh, connections etc so when a lot of things suddenly intersect um, in terms of trends, then suddenly you can get explosive developments mm -hmm. and they're never linear, you know, because linear developments, they are the product of just like one cost point slowly moving in one direction. And then something is like increasingly added every year. Yeah. But, and I think that's the whole problem of trying to forecast a solar. Typically when people forecast solar, they just look at like one parameter, like, What's the development of LCUE over time, and then they kind of ex, you know into extrapolate that into a fairly linear curve. But if you look at what's actually going on in the market, it's just like ten different trends that are overlapping each other, um, and the effect of that just keeps being something that surprises everyone. And I think it's gonna 
um, that's just going to go on. You have the exponential, the exponential surprises uh, to everyone's linear charts. Yeah, yeah. Good, good. So, uh, where, where do you, uh, in terms of um, power sources, where do you see the share of you know all those different renewable energy sources? So we have um, PV, solar thermal. We have wind. We have hydro. Uh, geothermal, uh, wave energy. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, the other, all the gases are just storage uh, um, means. So, w w where do you see the, do you have a, do you dare a forecast on the share of those different <laughs> nah, technologies? Like I mean, some say it's going to be only solar and wind, and, and the rest will be just uh, single digit percentage. Um, yeah. I'm not going to do a forecast because I mean simply because I haven't done one. Like it's not my yeah. my uh, day job, so I don't sit on a, on a, any kind of forecasting model. But yeah. my my strong view in terms of the, the trend is that there are a number of things that are unique with solar that makes me think that solar is going to be the dominant power source um, in the fairly near future. So like the next one to two decades, and I'm just going to say like these. The couple of things that I always come back to, the first one being um, uh, what we call bankability in our sector, but just the fact that solar is so well proven that everyone in the world is kind of willing to finance solar for almost nothing and they're willing to create everything else that you need for actual technology deployment, you know, like insurance or like you have a super long-term guarantees or, or like product guarantees or you have people willing to do O&M over the long term. All of these things are in place for solar. They're not in place for a lot of the other technologies, but, and, and that's why you're getting a lock-in effect and solar being very, very easy to deploy. Mm -hmm. Secondly, obviously solar is basically the cheapest one in terms of LCOE today. And it's just, as far as we can tell, it just keeps, the economies of scale just keep pushing down that cost point. So it's likely to stay the cheapest. Thirdly, it's the most modular and most flexible. So you can kind of, you can do it small, you can do it big, you can do it, whatever, floating on a lake, you can do it uh, pretty much anywhere you want. Um, so I think the combination of those factors just leads to a very strong kind of lock-in effect in terms of future power being like, well, you know, why not just make it solar? That's the easiest. Let's just keep rolling out solar. That's always the easiest. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, cool. Thanks, thanks for sharing your your views on that. Um, and what about storage? Um, where is this headed? I mean, with the larger portion of generation, we need to. This becomes uh, more and more important, um, together with EVs uh, and all the national activities, at least here in, in Europe. And uh, hydrogen and lithium are in. Uh, everybody's looking at those two. Um, Where, where do you see prices and the the level of uh, usage in, in, in the industry? I mean, storage is going to be super important. And that's because it's going to turn solar into more or less kind of baseload power in the end. Um, and it's going to balance the grids. So it's going to provide reliability services back to the grid. So in terms of frequency regulation and voltage regulation and all of these things that, I mean, ultimately the grid needs a lot of support back from from um, from re renewables in order to work so uh, storage will do all of these things and i think there are a number of bottlenecks at the moment in storage that are really interesting because they will be um, they will change over the near term like over the next one two three years they're going to change really rapidly in europe and um, actually again we're seeing that happening in the us even faster and i think the two important bottlenecks in storage Are, the first one is digital. It's about market automating kind of market participation of storage. So I'm not talking about the battery management system, which is like digital and, and tells the battery exactly what to do. I'm talking about how the battery takes part in market transactions. Mm. Uh, just teaching teaching the batteries to participate in markets, to to trade frequency um, regulation, to trade kilowatt hours, um, to trade together with the inverter actually together with inverter trade uh, voltage so this is just about making sure that the, the, the batteries is an automated kind of participant in markets 
super important and it's kind of difficult to get that right and there's not that many platforms out there to do it today so it's something where you need to put in a lot of digital development to make it work um, the other side of that the other big development that's happening but it's going to make a big impact is to open up marketplaces for storage so because again storage can provide a lot of like other things than just kilowatt hours it can provide frequency regulation um, for example but you need marketplaces that puts a price uh, tag on those services and you need those marketplaces to become kind of sophisticated you need liquidity which means just like you just need a lot of people to be trading on the marketplaces um, you probably need some contract functions you can do long-term contracting etc and all of this is happening i mean it's opening up across europe the grid operators um, are opening up marketplaces for this um, and the better those marketplaces become and the better we get at automating digitally automating the participation of storage in that the more this is going to just be a no-brainer and something that we deploy um, everywhere. Yeah. So uh, did I understand that correctly? So basically, storage is not just doesn't just create value from uh, providing energy, but for example, the frequency stabilization is is a value of its own. So you yeah. could put a price tag on that, for example, as well. Yeah, totally. And I think when you look at the long term, what's going to happen with the grids? Um, and what will need to happen in order to move to a very highly uh, renewable energy system, then these services are going to get so much more valuable. So even if the price tag on frequency regulations might be low today, or it might be difficult to actually reach or to actually find the right price point, we can be, I think we can be more or less certain that that's going to be a very economically valuable thing to provide just a few years from now. Yeah. So it's like, it's like a, you know, as a parallel value stream from solar and storage that's just going to become really really important going forward yeah interesting any other extra value so it's the power itself it's the frequency um any other feature new feature of electricity yeah i mean there's lots of features and so there's like when you talk about the reliability of the grid i mean there's like yeah. a cluster there's like a cluster of things you want to do you want to be able to but but they 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 all boil down to three three things. It's either kilowatt hours that you you move the kilowatt hours in time in one or another way. Yeah. It's frequency. You do something with the frequency, uh, or it's voltage. So you do something with the voltage level. Um, yeah. and actually, on the voltage level, uh, we're all we're able to use the inverters to provide reliability services on the voltage level. But that's also something where you know it's underdeveloped today because we need more sophisticated software to do it and we need marketplaces to open up that we can participate in so i think ultimately solar uh, as people and people have been experimenting with this in california again of course california like it's always california <laughs> where, they, where they do things but like first solar i know they did like a 700 megawatt um, installation in california where they were selling reliability services back to pg e uh, and they just did fantastically well with that. And they were able to show that, that if you optimize a solar asset for reliability services, rather than just kilowatt hour production, uh, you can get amazing results and, and, and better results than, than the equal or the kind of the same level deployment of, for example, gas peakers, which, which would be an, uh, yeah. an alternative way to provide reliability services. So. I think it might come a point fairly soon when we start optimizing solar assets for reliability rather than energy production. And that, that's going to be the foundation of a solid long-term development of, of renewables. Yeah. Fascinating. Talking about California, um, yeah. that's also the country where there's uh, freaking blackouts and, and PG&E, yeah. they, they didn't make it through the last fires. Yeah. Um, what do you do you have a opinion or understanding of what that happens because i mean you could think well if they are so advanced in their business models and technology why do they have these blackouts and many of course then critics then blame the renewables for overloading or uh, the the grid right um that do you yeah have i mean opinion or knowledge on <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm not going to give a specific opinion on the on the current blackouts in California because I just don't know that yeah. well. I mean, 
it's it's a very specific market. But but I do want to say and come back to that, you know, there's a massive underutilized potential of renewable assets to provide reliability services to the grid. So of course, like in places like California, we have it's the same in Germany. We have a lot of deployment of solar assets since 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 way back. But the vast majority of this deployment is completely like stupid, if you like. I mean, it's just kilowatt hours, completely weather dependent, just, you know, push, push it out into the grid whenever the sun is producing. Mm. That's it. I mean, that's so unnecessary. Like we would be able to, if we were more coordinated here as a society or as a grid, we would make sure to open up the marketplaces very quickly that would put the, a serious price tag on the ability of all these solar assets to provide reliability services because then they could shift over to doing that even even without adding even without adding storage they could utilize the inverters better uh, to provide reliability and you would give everyone a bit of an impulse to to add storage quickly um, to the assets so i think it's it's a lot of um i mean is, is solar to blame for anything well i mean certainly if you put a lot of solar into a grid but only on the kind of the kilowatt hour side, but you just don't allow for those assets to provide anything else, then, I mean, that's not a, that's not really sustainable in the very long term. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Plenty to learn, plenty to develop in, in, in the, yeah. in the markets, uh, technology. Yeah, but I think so. Otherwise, um, yeah. This is and, where entrepreneurial uh, opportunities are, are opening up at this point. Yeah. Very large uh, scale. Yeah. Okay, let's jump to what you're doing now. Um, you now uh, you co-founded and you're the CEO of Alight. And uh, yeah, as I mentioned, you're the leading solar power purchase agreement provider in the Nordics. So first of all, why did you get started? Why did, why did you found this company? You could have stayed on in uh, previous jobs and uh, do it from there, try to convince the CEO and say, hey, we need to do PPAs. Yeah, yeah, I guess I suppose. Uh, yeah, but look, like as an investor, you're not supposed to kind of tell your entrepreneurs what to do. So when you find yourself that, that you want yeah. to start telling everyone else what to do, then you realize that you have to become an entrepreneur yourself. Because okay, yeah. That's the best way to get it done, right? So mm. no, there was, this was a gap in the market. And I mean... Again, I, you saw the a, gap. Yeah, and uh, yeah. We had a vision of like yeah. setting up a, a leading European company that would do subsidy-free solar as, as more or less baseload. Uh, and save money for power users across Europe uh, yeah. and turn it into a commercial business model. So, and and at the time, and we had the vision, and we just couldn't see that anyone else was doing it in a in what we felt was a solid way. So we felt, you know, we, we felt that let's just uh, someone has to do this. Let's, yeah. let's get it done. Yeah, cool. So who's who's we? So, yeah. So that's well, my me and my co-founders at that point. So okay. Uh, yeah. And and. Uh, Richard, who's our CFO, and William, who's doing site development for us. So they're still with me in the company. And, uh, yeah. But now it's 30 people in the company. So now we have become bigger. Okay. Uh, 30 people. And we have a, yeah. yeah. And we have a bunch of investors, etc. So um, I guess we now is like the, the big community. Sure. Yeah. Excellent. All right. But but you founded the company. Uh, the, there was two of you. The... Uh, three. 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 Okay. Good, good. 30 people now. Can you give us a rough indication on, on the on the revenue and, and you know the size of the company, how many customers you, you have got? Just to give an idea. Yes, I mean we and we're still a small company. We set up ourselves, we've done about 40 customer installations, PPAs, but we came out of the rooftop side of things. So whereas yeah. some you know, some of the people have done uh, solar parks in Europe, they've deployed hundreds of megawatts of solar but maybe through two or three ppa contracts for us it's just been the other way around we've done 40 ppa contracts but, but still like we're in total we're around 25 megawatts or 30 megawatts um now pushing into a very large pipeline because increasingly we're doing off-site uh solar parks so that's so much bigger but um and revenue this year is going to be about 10 million euros um, we, we just did the largest solar park in, in, in Sweden, um, which is still not very large. It's like 12 megawatts 
and uh, someone came direct, directly afterwards and said, oh, look, we have the largest solar park and it's like 12.5 or something. So maybe yeah. it's not <laughs> the largest anymore. Uh, and uh, But now we're also working across Europe. So since one year back, we, we've uh, pushed very fast to get out into the European market and, and um, position ourselves as a PPA solar expert, very focused on, on yeah. rolling yeah. out solar PPAs for large companies. Yeah. So, so what exactly is the business model? You also build the plants, the parks, the solar plants. Yeah, we contract. You're the EPC. Who, You're an EPC. Well, no. Who, who so we builds? coordinate. We yeah. coordinate the EPC. We contract someone to to be the EPC, and we have strong opinions about the, the EPC work. We have engineers that 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 kind of think around. Yeah. Obviously, what we want to build, but we we want to contract EPCs. I mean, it's a great market. You have really experienced European EPCs out there, so it doesn't make any sense to build build that on your own. Okay. So we're very good at at what we want to find the customer and sign the PPA. Um, good at kind of uh, going to finding the right EPC to build it for us. Um, having the long term capital so that we really the long term. In the long-term owner or the long-term controller of the assets, <clears throat> which means that we can serve the customer over the long time, but also means that we can add these new revenue streams over time. We can build reliability services over time. Um, so you also so own, but you own the the park. Yeah, we have as so we own it, but we you know, we use asset financing from from big pension funds to to own the assets, but we control. Um, control that financing and we okay. control the assets over the long term. So uh, you can be regarded in an IPP, is, is that correct? Yeah, some new, I mean, in Europe, the IPPs were typically people who just own these really passive assets, like the FPDN tariff assets. And I mean, we're more of like a, an, an operational IPP. I mean, we're an IPP within PPA. That's lots of, you know, too many uh, strange abbreviations in that sentence. Yeah. But yeah, it's like, We, we have similarities to IPPs. I'm not sure if we're totally similar to European yeah. IPPs. Yeah, just to explain the, the abbreviation. So IPP means uh, individual, uh, independent power uh, producer uh, in contrast to, like, let's say, the established utilities, uh, like, as you mentioned earlier, PG&E in, in the US, uh, or, I don't know, Vattenfall in, known in, in Europe, or E.ON and RWE in, uh, in Germany. Yeah. Okay. So, so you you don't match one of those categories because you, but you own the asset. Okay, finance through pension funds, and then you provide the the electricity through PPS to end customer. So, yeah, yeah, good, yeah. It's good. a different beast. Like in in European solar terms, we're kind of a different beast. In in Europe, you're typically seen as either a developer or an IPP. And we're kind of like something else. You know, we tried to do whatever Sun Edison was doing or Solar City was doing in the US. And they were kind of, they were not really called either developer or IPP. They were kind of called, I don't know, sol solar PPA companies, like solar service companies sometimes. Okay. okay. I guess we have to find some kind of new funky term for us. Yeah. <laughs> so, um... Let's switch to briefly to another aspect. Um, so you, you founded the company, um, a few guys, now you're 30 people. What was the biggest learning for you, right? Um, uh, I went through that process myself multiple times and uh, it's, it's a different thing than uh, you know, having a job in a company. What yeah. was the biggest learning? What was the, maybe also your biggest mistake, if, if you dare to share. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but I think like the learning for me personally, um, there's one key learning I feel, and it's actually the same learning that I had from my PhD period. Uh, because okay. so I'm going to start there because when I, when I was doing my PhD, sometimes when you do a PhD, you just go like, "Oh, this is so difficult." Like, you know, I should just do something else. And then I talked to some people who who were kind of came out to the other end and who already had their PhDs and just you know asked for some counseling whatever and everyone said the same thing and everyone said like you know you just simply have to keep track of why you are doing the phd like if you just remember why you're doing it like the actual purpose of you doing this particular phd then you know you're always gonna find the way out 
Mm. That's it. Just focus on that. And, and I felt going into business and as an entrepreneur, it's exactly the same thing. Like, it is difficult. I mean, and there are times when it's really difficult. And when you, especially, you know, as you get a bit older, you're like, well, I could take this other job. And that would be so nice. And it's wonderful salary, whatever. And why am I not doing that? But the one thing that will keep you going um, and, and just answer the question is to just keep remembering the actual purpose and just keep repeating it. And then, and it might sound trivial, but I don't think it is trivial because I think a purpose needs a lot of attention on its own. Like you need to actually not just repeat the purpose. You need to you know, challenge it and develop it and question it and talk about it and like go deeper into it. Like, you need, you know, you need to kind of, it's like your religion. You need to, pray to the purpose you know you worship the, the purpose because otherwise you forget it like we're not we can't just put a purpose on a powerpoint somewhere and like leave it at the bottom of the file folder like we it's a daily activity to remember your purpose yeah. and to calibrate whatever you're doing so that you keep feeling that this is actually the best way to go after the purpose because maybe I it's not like to that, yeah. something you know? yeah so that, yeah. yeah that's it's a simple learning, I guess, but I don't know. Do you, do you recognize it from your own? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, with with my company, Waveless, I mean, there were in the beginning there's tough times, right? And you have a plan, and then you think it's all all set and easy peasy. You've got a business plan, but of course, there's obstacles you haven't really seen. And uh, in these times, you need a, as you mentioned, you need to believe in your vision, right? Because otherwise. This, this is then sometimes the only source of energy for for you to keep going right yeah because yeah. uh, it's the one it's the one thing it's the one thing that would just keep yeah. you going it's just like man, you and others will think that it's because you have this stamina or you're smart or whatever but no it's just like that one single thing that keeps you going every day it's yeah that little <laughs> once you get that loop going like no but this is the most important thing that i can work on and it's a clear purpose and i just have to get it done then that's it yeah. yeah so uh, good one good one nice one um we, we talked about ppas and from when when uh, when we listen to you then uh, ppas are the only way to get electricity business-wise from uh, from the solar park or from the wind farm to any any source to the to the end customer but there are sure there are alternatives and uh, why are ppas the best Yes, I mean, look, there's this big controversy, and I think it's a. This is really like something that's actually controversial among customers and being debated and being like you can you can get kind of, uh, you know, kind of, uh, um, partly hot conversations going on this, but but it's the question of EX and EX is is again we have a strange abbreviation, but it's but it's uh, stands for the Energy Attribute Certificate. So EX is like a certificate that you're buying green electricity <clears throat> and we look at commercial customers power users uh, just a few years back they were all saying that oh you know we have 100 percent renewable electricity period and then you check you know what do they actually mean and what they meant was that they were buying certificates they were buying ex um, and they were buying ex that were not connected to any particular action on their part. So they could buy EX from like a wind plant that has been up and running for many years, but then suddenly the customer turns up and just starts buying the EX. Um, and, and they say that now we're buying electricity from this wind park. That's great. We have 100% renewable electricity. And increasingly, people are saying that, wait, you know, hang on a minute, like if if you want to talk about sustainability, like if you're doing this for a sustainability perspective, then surely, you know, you must do something that changes something in this world. Like you have to, you have to tell us if you say that you have 100% renewable electricity, but you should probably tell us why you have made more renewable electricity. Why have your actions led to more renewable electricity? And the problem with the EX was that there was just no reasonable way that you could claim this because they were not that valuable. So the fact that you were buying EX just didn't mean that, it just didn't mean that anyone else started building new power plants because 
the EX were so valuable. It was just the other way. EX costed nothing. That was just that was the reason why it was so simple to buy them. Mm. So this is a really, I mean, I think this is a controversial question because you still have a lot of big company brand names out there saying that, oh, we have 100% renewable electricity, but it's all EX. And, but increasingly, I think consensus among the people who especially sense the SDGs, the, the, renew, the, the UN Sustainable Development Goals that came out of the Paris Agreement in 2015 and 2016 and 2017, these became, the SDGs became like the kind of the gold standard for how to create your sustainability actions. You can't get around that, like SDG 7.2 just says really explicitly that you have to increase the amount of renewable electricity in this world and you have to explain how you're doing that. And with a PPA, that's super clear. Like you sign a PPA with me, I will build a new solar site. Like that chain is just super clear. Um, and it's, it's like clinically proven, you know? And with the EX, like there's just no way to, to prove that chain. So yeah, I mean, I think that is the other way of buying renewable electricity, but I, but I think, you know, I want to highlight that con controversy and, and kind of, yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, but with the PPA, you provided 24 seven electricity, right? So you, you, that, that's what your customer or how, because you, so, so you also can, dependent on, on these certificates because you have to cover the, the night or at, let's say, no sunshine days with with other electricity you buy in or how? so the most so yeah it's a good question like so solar ppas um typically tend to be pay as produced which just means that we're selling electricity when we produce it not the rest of the time so okay. we're not selling a hundred percent of the electricity that the customer needs um we're selling 30 of the electricity that the customer needs and then they buy other electricity for the rest of the Of the, of the time so we don't take the overall responsibility for the customer complete okay. power need we just say that whenever the sun is shining we're going to sell you that electricity right. at that right. time so you're selling actually to utilities because they then uh, provide the, the they buy in they buy the remaining kilowatt hours yeah so this customers. is again you have good good but technical questions uh so yeah that, that's it. actually you can sell pbas to utilities and a lot of People are doing that. That's on network point. operators. I don't know how you would uh, term them. Yeah. yeah, you could. Yeah, you could sell to the network operator too. But yeah. it's usually like a utility or an energy yeah. trading company. But but then you can sell PPAs directly to power users. And so if you're on the rooftop, so you're what they say behind the meter, you actually just sell the power straight into whatever whatever they're using the power for. So this it's an industry. They have a rooftop. You're selling the power oh, right it's on into the factory itself. Okay. Exactly. That, that's what we call an on-site PPA. Yeah. And it just means that from the side of the grid, they're just buying less energy, right? All right, 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 right. Yeah, but then you can do an off-site PPA, and then you're like you're somewhere else on a on a okay. field, and there's a PPA with the customer. Now, the, the typical way we do this is actually through a financial mechanism where we we're actually not we're not like physically moving the electricity to the customer. We're just in the same electricity pricing zone as the customer. So we are here and we're like, we're selling electricity into the grid and getting paid for it. And the customer is here and they're buying electricity from the grid. And then we just make sure that we can swap the costs so that the, it's a contract for difference. It's like uh, the customer, if we have a certain level, a certain price level, And if we're getting paid more than that price level from the grid, we're going to send that money to the customer. Okay. If we're going to getting paid less than that, we're going to take some money from the customer. But yeah. it's a financial settlement. Okay. Then uh, somehow just, the sorry, yeah, you go. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to add one last thing because you were right. You were mentioning the EX, and you're right about the fact that when you do a PPA, it's super important to transfer the EX to the customer. So you can't do a PPA without the, without EX. It's at least a solar PPA, yeah. a proper yeah. renewable. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So it's just the other way, but it's just that we, with the EX that we give the customer, they are what we call bundled EX. So the customer can say that, look, these EX, they wouldn't exist unless I, as a customer, had made it happen. Yeah. So it's additionality is the kind of like the, the sustainability yeah. word. It's, The customer has created these EX themselves. Yeah, yeah. It, this is technical. I mean, I'm I'm not sure if it's like 
Yeah, it's. I mean, explaining uh, it like it's. Yeah, devil's advocate. So, uh, is it very open for fraud? I mean, then basically you need to measure the meter, need smart, super precise uh, meters everywhere yeah. to, to measure the the kilowatt hours, and so that the total sum is then somehow the correct value. And also um, with these, uh, let's say, virtual certificates. Yeah. Um, isn't that a system which is super open for fraud and maybe you can live by small effects here and there and make a, a billion easily? Uh, good question. We have what, what about, for example, many... transmission losses, right? You have a meat on one side and then uh, you sell it on the, some other side and then you have 10% loss on the transmission um, line. I, yeah, I just realized I... that it's because uh, with previous uh, conversations, I. Uh, it's it's not straightforward right so when you go into when you keep asking then uh, it becomes a compl well, more complex and more have, complex right and you can't, yeah, can't, exactly. yeah so i'm gonna say this i mean to be perfectly honest about the way our industry works is that this simple pitch to customers is that look sign a simple contract you know, sign a ppa and you get all of this easy happen. yeah but, but the, you know the the honest fact is that the PPA contracts, as such, are growing increasingly complex. So, and you and I think that's necessary, and it and it also reflects the fact that coming back to what we talked about earlier, pretty soon it's going to be more than just the kilowatt hours. It's going to be reliability services, etc., baked into the PPAs. And yeah, but but there are so many reasons that the PPAs can be a bit complex, and in terms of what's the shape, you know, who is taking exactly what risk at what part of the chain. So, and I think, so if you would ask me, you know, what's the, what's the, like the downside of PPAs or what's the difficult thing for customers about using PPAs? Mm. I mean, I think it's like looking at that contract and understanding that contract you do need. A lot of times customers bring in a, an external consultant to, to really put pressure on us and I mean, really understand the contract. Uh, there might even be two consultants. There might be a technical consultant to kind of look at the fundamental technical aspects of the PPA, but then a, a legal consultant to, to look at the legal side. So I don't think you need this when you do on-site PPAs. That, that tends to be straightforward. Yeah, it's, it's easy. You, you see basically, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you just see how much energy you get. But, yeah. but when you do the off-site stuff, I mean, yeah, it, 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 you do need a little bit of a team to, to make that work. But on the other hand, the volumes are so big and it's the transactional like the money involved is, is is significant so it probably makes sense that there should be a, a bit of uh, work going on to make sure that everything is is super straight and, and super clear yeah is there some sort of authority for example in sweden or in other countries um which then uh, make sure that you know uh, the the sources and the sinks uh match up and uh, also related the the euro or the money flow is a uh, kind of matches that complex yeah system. we go i mean yeah like the, there'll be a number of them so because we use we use the electricity system so mm. there will be someone who's who's responsible for balancing and there will be you know different settling counterparties that's that's all a part of like the, the electricity system uh, you have those parties in there um and, but and then in terms of the PPA, just making sure that like there's a PPA standard. There's I think that's that's interesting work that's increasingly being done by a number of of good um, organizations. So people like Solar Power Europe um, mm -hmm. or RE Hundred. I mean, doing great work in making sure that the way that we approach PPAs is being standardized and and there's a common set of a common language and a common set of standards. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Int interesting stuff. Um, uh, very cool. So, w where do you see? Let's say we, we talked about bottlenecks as the as your guiding principle. Um, one of the key questions we also address here is: uh, What do you think? Does solar or the re wind and the renewables in general? Um, what does it take to get that industry to the next level, to get to 100% uh, renewable energy coverage? What's the thing where you think uh, it 
that that's required? Yeah, so two two themes. Um, the one theme is capital cost, mm -hmm. and that's pretty straightforward. The other theme is is reliability services. Um, yeah. So the first theme, capital cost. I mean, the capital cost is still the largest component of of cost, and for both wind and solar, the largest kind of single component of cost, and it's low. I mean, capital cost when you finance these things that's come down hugely i mean massively and that's great but you know let me be a little bit controversial here and say it should go down to zero i mean seriously like this is so and not not just for i don't know idealistic reasons but just because this is the most solid future proven critical infrastructure that you could invest in um, and when you do the math as an investor this is where you get the least risk in the long term so I mean, it should go down to zero. And as it does, which is basically what's happening, I mean, the capital cost is constantly being pressured because of capital competition in these sectors. But, but that is still the bottleneck. So, I mean, being able to slash prices even further will demand even more capital cost pressure. Uh, and as that happens, deployment rate is going to go up even further. But so that's the one thing. But the other thing that's just as important to society, basically, I mean, to the general reception of renewables in society is that this exact theme we have been talking about already but as we deploy these assets solar assets or wind assets they have to be geared to provide reliability services back to the grid and we have to pretty much optimize some of the assets for reliability services rather than just kilowatt hour production that is the only way we're going to be able to um go to 100 renewable and use the grid and not you know not be a problem for society in the end or not be a problem for we have to be responsible stakeholders i mean there is a grid we need to kind of make it work in the long term as well um and we can uh, uh, we just need to make sure that's being done yeah so those are the two big bottlenecks i think and, and uh, the one the one being just about capital the other one being about how we how we gear the assets, how we create the assets. Uh, Excellent. <coughs> Thanks a lot. Yeah, I mean, cost of cattle, you, you, I'm still surprised when you say um, it's the, the largest uh, cost driver for, for the assets because, I mean, interest rates are, are, are that low already. Um, um, interesting view. Cool. Hey, Harald, anything else you want to you wanna add? Now we talked about a lot of things. I mean, it was a great yeah. conversation. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, I think you had, uh, you had good questions. Uh, yeah, good, excellent. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for coming onto the show and, uh, and sharing your views. Um, it's been a fantastic hour. And uh, yeah, all the best with your, with, with your business, Harald. Yeah, thank you, Torsten, and likewise. And it's been it's been a really nice conversation. So keep up the good work with the solar journey, and uh, I look forward not only to hearing this one, we've already heard it, but to hear all of your future podcasts. Uh, they've been really interesting to to listen to. Excellent. Thanks a lot, Howard. Bye bye.